0: Our sermon today will be taken from Romans chapter 4, verses 1 to 12. This is the word of God. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work but believes in him, who justify the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David also spoke of the blessing of the one who, whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose who lawless deeds are forgiven, and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Is this blessing then only for the circumcised, for also for the uncircumcised? For we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then what is counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised, so that righteousness will be counted to them as well. And to make him the father of the circumcised, who are not merely circumcised, but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. Thus says the Lord.
1: Thank you so much. It's a pleasure for me to be here with you and to see some old friends here as well as to make new friends. Uh, Z from Singapore, and uh, yeah, we are planting a new church, and it's exciting to see what God has done here. I came here on a trip uh, many years ago with City to City in 2012. At that point in time, we were scouting for the possibility of starting a church. Uh, City to City hadn't even met Tezar at that point in time. So it's such a joy to come here and see uh, the church that God has pulled together and called together by his gospel. Let's go to the Lord in prayer as we prepare our hearts to hear his word. Let's seek the help of the Holy Spirit to understand his most holy word. Our Father in heaven, we thank you so much for your grace and your mercy toward us. We thank you for giving us your most holy word, the word by which you speak to us, the word by which you direct us, the word by which you comfort us. And today, oh God, we pray that your spirit will come, prepare our hearts, that we may hear your very voice through the preaching of your word. We need you, we long for you, we desire you. In Jesus' name we pray. Nearly 500 years ago, in the year 1517, the German monk Martin Luther famously nailed the 95 Thesis to the door of the Wittenberg Church. It was his protest against the corruption and excesses that he saw in the Roman Catholic Church. And it would spark off a movement that became known as the Protestant Reformation. A movement that not only changed Europe, but the rest of the world. Now, although Luther's actions had theological and political intentions, It can also be argued that what drove him primarily was intensely pastoral. It was because he cared about the people under his care. Luther was primarily a pastor. What was he protesting against? He was protesting against the sale of indulgences. You see, what happened was the medieval church at that time, they wanted to raise money to build St. Peter's Basilica in Rome. And to do so, to raise money, They authorized the sale of indulgences. Actually, do you know that the area that Luther was in, Frederick the Wise, who was the protectorate of that area, he didn't actually allow the sale of indulgences in that area. But what happened was some of Luther's parishioners, they would just cross the river, go to the accompanying territory, and get themselves some of those indulgences. And Luther would not have that. Luther would not stomach his people by indulgences. The narrative around indulgences went something like this. By buying an indulgence, by paying money for indulgence, you could absorb yourself or your loved ones from God's punishment. In other words, God's grace could be bought and sold for money. God's grace could be bought and sold for money. And you can see how this could lead to manipulative and exploitative practices affecting especially the poor, the ignorant and the vulnerable. And as a pastor, Luther would have none of it. Forgiveness was God's alone to give. It could not be bought or sold like a commodity, like a credit. God is far too holy and sin is far too serious to allow such a transaction. That is why, even though at the point of nailing the 95 Theses to the Wittenberg Castle, Even though the doctrine of justification by faith alone was not fully recovered yet, Luther planted the seeds for this to be one of the main, if not the main and key doctrines to be recovered at the time of the Reformation. The doctrine of justification by faith alone. It simply states that God declares people righteous, not on the basis of good works, but rather on the basis of faith alone in the finished work of Christ alone. In other words, your salvation, my salvation, is not something that can be earned by human efforts. It's not something that we receive on the basis of works. It's a completely and absolutely free gift from God. Luther would later call this the heart of Christianity, the hinge on which all else turns and the issue on which the church stands Some of you are thinking, isn't this old news? Come on, we're a covenant city church. We do not need to hear about justification by faith alone. We know this doctrine already. You see, the reality is, you may know the details of this doctrine, but the question is, does it affect every area of your life? Is it a vivid and burning reality in your life? Is it something that you receive not just on Sunday, but that affects your Monday to Sunday? Is it something that affects everything that you do? The Apostle Paul, he had that same concern for you and I. If you've been studying the book of Romans, if you've looked at the book of Romans, you know that he spent the first few chapters talking about about justification by faith alone. In chapter 1, verse 16, he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. He spent chapter one talking about justification by faith. In chapter three, as he concludes his argument, he concludes in chapter three, verse twenty-one The righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, through the law and but although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God, verse 22, through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. So he spent three entire chapters talking to us about justification by faith alone, in Christ alone. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, he was a famous Welsh preacher of the previous century, he made a very interesting observation. He said, Paul could have very easily skipped from Romans 3:26, after talking about justification by faith alone, all the way to Romans 5, verse 1, where he starts to talk about the benefits of justification by faith alone. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, Romans 5, verse 1, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. The peace that we obtain is justification by faith. But Paul doesn't do that. He spends an entire whole chapter, Romans chapter 4 explaining to us again, the doctrine of justification by faith alone. And he takes a slightly different tack. Instead of just talking about it in terms of propositional truth, he starts to talk about it through the lives of two of Israel's greatest heroes, Abraham and David. Now the audience of the Book of Rome and some scholars tell us is probably Jewish Christians and Gentile non-Jewish Christians who were very influenced by Jewish practices, so when Paul starts mentioning Abraham and David, their ears would open up. They would begin to get interested and excited. What is he going to say? It's called, Paul spends an entire chapter talking about the doctrine of justification by faith. And faith. Why? Well, firstly, because Paul wants them to really, really, really. Try. Paul wants you. Really, really get this doctrine. He's not satisfied with the I know this already. It's old news. He wants it to capture your hearts. He wants it to be a burning reality in your hearts. John Calvin, another reformer, once said this The gospel is not a doctrine of the tongue, but of the life. It cannot be grasped by reason and memory only. But it is fully understood when it possesses the whole soul and penetrates to the inner recesses of the heart. It, when it possesses the whole soul and penetrates to the inner recesses of the heart. In other words, Paul wants this. He wants the justification by faith alone to penetrate to the very inner recesses of your heart. And mind. Secondly, He wants his readers to see how this doctrine is fleshed out in real life. He talks about the truth. He brings up two human examples. He wants to show them these are two men, two human beings, like you and me, who have been justified by faith alone. And this is how this doctrine has changed their lives. It's changed you too. It should affect you at the very deepest recesses of your hearts. It should affect how you live your entire life, how you treat other people, how you think about other people, how you do your work, how you deal with your relationships. This doctrine is not meant to be a relic of history. It's meant to be a living reality. The question that God has for you today, the question that the Apostle Paul would have for you today, is the doctrine of justification, vividly, actively, burningly alive in your heart? So if it is, you'll see three things happening in your life. We're going to look at three points here. The doctrine of justification by faith should firstly produce in you and in me the absence of those things. It's in Romans 4 verses 1 to 6. Secondly, it should produce in us the accent or the emphasis on believing, chapter 4, verse 3, verses 9 to 12. And certainly, the awareness of blessing, chapter 4, verse 6 to 9. The absence of boasting, the accent of believing, and the awareness of blessing. Let's look at these points in turn. Firstly, the absence of boasting. Would you come with me to Romans chapter 4, verse 1? In other words of Paul, What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? Abraham was the father of the Jewish people. In Genesis 12, 15, and 17, God made a covenant with Abraham and his offspring. He said to Abraham, I will be your God and you will be my people. That was the Genesis, the beginning of the nation of Israel. Abraham was the first Jew. He was their great patriarch. He was the one that the Jewish people looked up to. How was this great man of God? How was he justified? How was he declared righteous before God? Verse 2. If Abraham was justified by words, he has something to boast about, but not before God. The way that Abraham was justified left him with nothing at all to boast about. It wasn't by his words. Rather, chapter 4 verse 3. Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Romans 4-3 is actually a quotation from Genesis 15-6 and it shows us that God's plan to save people has always been by grace to faith, whether in the Old Testament or in the New Testament. God has one plan of redemption for all humanity whether Jew or otherwise. And Paul then uses an analogy from the world of work and wages to support illustrate this point. He says this in verse 4, To the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. If someone employs you, and you work for them, at the end of the month, they pay you your wage. That's not a gift. It's what you deserve. If they withhold that from you, it's a a real problem. You need to to, to settle it somehow. It's unfair if if they don't pay you. Chapter 4 verse 5, to the one who does not work, but trusts him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. When it becomes to being justified, when it comes to being declared righteous before God, you don't work for it. You don't earn it. It is a free gift. Now this isn't a proof text for laziness, just in case you are wondering. Because in 2 Thessalonians 3, verse 10, Paul says, If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. So hard work is very much part of the Christian work ethic. In fact, someone once said, the gospel isn't against effort. The gospel is against earning. The gospel isn't against effort. In fact, when the gospel gets into your heart, you're going to work harder than you ever worked in your life. But you don't earn the righteousness of God. That's given to you as a gift." so this isn't the proof text that you go to if you don't feel like doing your homework or going to work on a morning what Paul is saying is this when it comes to being justified before Almighty God your good works my good works count absolutely nothing your good works and my good works when it comes to being justified before Almighty God they count for absolutely nothing. It takes away any possibility of boasting in your home. Different people boast of different reasons. If you're from a more traditional, conservative society, you tend to value community and duty. So if you give yourself for the sake of community, if you perform your duty, you'll be commended by your society, you'll be commended by your community. And you can boast in that. The Jews were like that. If you keep the law of Moses, if you're circumcised, if you eat kosher food, if you kept the boundary markers of Jewish religion, you were in, you were commended. You could boast in that. Now this setup is pretty admirable because it isn't self-serving. You're thinking about the good of the whole rather than just yourself. But it can also be incredibly crushing for some reason or other you cannot conform to the status of your community what if there's something in you that prevents you from conforming to the majority maybe it's a sickness that you have maybe the majority have done something that is absolutely wrong ethically wrong if you were to turn against the community if you were not to conform if you were not to perform your duty you'd be rejected you'd be ostracized you'd be cast out on the other hand, if you're from a more progressive, liberal culture, you will pr- prize the individual and self expression You value living true to yourself, doing what you love, being all that you can be, chasing your dreams, achieving your full potential. That's what you boasted. Now, this seems incredibly liberating. It sounds incredibly liberating. And it really does a good job in emphasizing the dignity of the individual. I'd like to submit to you that there's a dark underbelly here that we don't always recognize. What if, for some reason or other, you can't live out all your dreams, you can't achieve your full potential? What if, for some reason, your dreams are not fulfilled? What's worse actually, disappointing the community around you You see, it also can be incredibly crushing, not to mention incredibly self-centered, narcissistic. We're living for our dreams and just aspiring and achieving things for ourselves. But does it really benefit others? Or is it all about me? The point of this is this. Whether you're traditional or progressive, we all boast. You just boast in different things. One says you boast in beauty you'll be commended. The other says you boast in self-expression and you will be commended too. But justification by faith alone says that no amount of duty, no amount of self-expression can ever commend you to God. God accepts you, not on the basis of your duty, not on the basis of your self-expression, but on the basis of faith alone. That's incredibly humbling. St tremendously liberating. If you have justification by faith alone, then it is no longer the community or even your own expectations of yourself that define you. You're no longer desperate to conform to the community around you. You'll be able to resist peer pressure, especially when the whole community is doing something that's ethically wrong. You'll be able to stand up to it. At the same time, you'll be able to curb your self-expression and give yourself for the sake of others. Why? Because your self-expression doesn't define you either. Who cares about whether I achieve all of my dreams? I am God. Who cares whether I perform all my dreams? I am God. Do you see how the doctrine of justification works in your life and works out into everything that you the doctrine of justification by faith makes it possible for you to be truly humble and yet truly peaceful and truly yourself. It enables you to say no to either yourself or to the society around you. It enables you to say yes to the things that are good for The first thing that the doctrine of justification by faith produces in us is the absence of. It is is truly humble, truly useful, and truly ourselves. Awesome. The next thing it does is it produces the accent or the emphasis on the Come with me to chapter 4, verse 3. It says here, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Come with me to verse 5. And to him who does not work, but trust him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Faith is believing God and trusting in Christ. And it's something that Paul wants to emphasize for everyone, whether Jew or non-Jew. And how does he do this? He goes in verse 9 to 12 and talks about circumcision. He uses circumcision to emphasize faith. Now why circumcision? Why does Paul use circumcision to emphasize faith? You see, in Genesis 17, as a sign of the covenant that God made with Abraham, Abraham and all the males in his household were to be circumcised. Subsequently, all male Jewish children were circumcised on the eighth day as a sign that they belonged to God. This was an important sign of belonging for the Jewish people. The problem is that over time, they they came to depend on this sign as the basis for God's acceptance of them. As the basis of their justification. If you're circumcised, God will see you as righteous. If you aren't, God will see you as unrighteous. So, what does Paul say? He says in verse 9, Is this blessing, the blessing of justification by faith alone, only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? We say that faith is counted to Abraham as righteousness. Once again paul says it it's not on the basis of circumcision it's not on the basis of faith that god counts abraham righteous verse 10 how then was it counted to him was it before or after he had been circumcised when did god count abraham righteous was it before or after he was circumcised so you know the book of genesis know that the covenant of circumcision came in Genesis 17. Where else Abraham was justified, was declared righteous by God in Genesis 15 verse 6. That's a whole 29 years between being declared righteous in Genesis 15 verse 6 and being given the covenant of circumcision. So it couldn't be that circumcision was what justified Abraham. His face in Genesis 15. That's why Paul says in 4 verse 10, it was not after but before he had been circumcised.
0: He received
1: the sign of circumcision as a seal of righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. It was a sign and a seal confirming the righteousness that he had by faith. And why did God do it that way? Verse 11, the purpose to make Abraham the father of all who believe, without being circumcised so that righteousness would be counted to them as well, right. So that all those who did not receive the sign of circumcision by faith in Christ could be justified by faith and could be included as children of Abraham. Maybe you're not from a Christian folk. Through a series of strange circumstances, you find yourself sitting right here in Covenant City Church. You come in, and initially it seems really strange. It's not what you're used to. Uh, the people seem a bit off. But you sense in your heart that as they sing, and as they pray, somehow these people know God. And you hear Tezar preach from the Bible about God, about sin, and about Christ, and suddenly you realize that he's talking about you. He's talking about your heart. He's talking about you as a sinner. He's talking about your need for a Savior, and Christ is that Savior. And you long to embrace Christ, but you hesitate. You think to yourself, give me a bit more time. Give me a bit more time. Let me Blend in a little more. Let me become a bit more like the, the good people around me. I'm not like them at all. That's an admirable thing. What Paul would say to you today, that blending in is not the basis of it. with God. Faith. Faith puts you in a right relationship with God and His family. Over time, you will blend in. Start dressing like everyone else around you. You will become more like the family. You've become a part of. The first things first, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be a child, of God. a child of Abraham. Don't wait. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and in the now you'd expect that as Paul has set this thing up, that he would probably say something like, "Well, circumcision is now irrelevant. You know, it's completely irrelevant. Forget it, totally." The thing is, so does not say that? In fact, in Romans 3, why? He says this, what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way. To begin with, the Jews, the people of God in the Old Testament, they were entrusted, they were given the oracles of God, the word of God, the Jews. They had been given such a great heritage. They had been given the very word of God, something that the majority of the world's population did not have. Romans 9, verse 4 To them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. What a great and glorious heritage. It was precious, it was valuable. But yet, it wasn't the basis for being justified. Before. Chapter 4, verse 12 Abraham is also the father of the circumcised. That's the Jews. But he qualifies that, he says, who are not merely circumcised, but also who walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. Abraham is the father to the non-Jews by faith. Or saying something radical here. He is also the father of the Jews by that very same faith. You see how circumcision works here? For Abraham, a new believer, it points back at the faith that he already had. For his children, it points forward to the faith that they must have. You see how it works here? He's a father of those who are circumcised and also walk in faith. In other words, it's an encouragement to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, he shared a story about a young man that uh, came to see him. This is Dr. Lloyd-Jones, his, his practice would be that he would preach uh, in his church. And he didn't believe in altar calls. He didn't call people forward to believe. Uh, but he would say, I'm going to go to my vestry, to my office. I'm there anyone who would like to speak to me after the sermon, please come along and I'll be ready to speak uh, to you." So he goes into his office, he sits down, and sometimes what happens is someone who's a new uh, believer comes in, and comes to him, and comes to the person and that person This particular incident that he shares, where he hears a knock on the door, he opens it, and the person that comes in is a young man, perhaps in his twenties, and he immediately, recognizes who this young man is. He's known this guy ever since he was born because his parents had brought him to Westminster Chapel uh, and basically placed him in the services ever since he was a This man was visibly uh, shaken. He sat down before Lloyd-Jones and uh, Lloyd-Jones began to ask him, what can I do for you? He began to tell his story. When I was a young boy and I had to sit through your sermons, I never liked it. So why is that? Because you would say, I'm about to finish, but you never did. You'd go on and on and on. I didn't like that. But then, when I was about 11 years old, I began to realize that you became useful to me. You see, I was a Christian boy, I was a good Christian boy, uh, in a public school. And in that school, I would uh, come face to face with many people who were non-Christian, and they would they would just mock me for my faith, and I had nothing to say. But I realized that if I listened carefully to what you said on Sunday, I had something to tell them on Monday. So I began to take copious notes every time you preached. He became very useful to me. I've been doing that for nearly 10 years. Something happened to me. Something very strange. The very first time, as you realized that you were talking about me. You became personal. You weren't just talking about sin. You were talking about my sin. You weren't just talking about a need for a Savior. You were talking about my need for a Savior. You were talking about me. After all those years, the little boy who grew up there, sitting under the gospel and met his savior. This young man, some of you may have spent your entire life in church. You were baptized as a child brought up in the face of your fathers. That's a glorious and envious heritage. You have the word of God given to you long before many others. You see the sacrament, that is of baptism. That's a great joy that the majority of the world's population has not been able to receive to His grace, that God has placed you in a family that knows Him, that loves Him, that follows Him. What is your response to such amazing grace? I would say, walk in the face of your eyes. The questions you need for those of you who are in common families, for those of you who have received such great. As it you, you embrace Christ for yourself by faith? Yes, and please. finally, the awareness of blessing. Let's go back to Romans 4, verse 5. Paul says, this, to the one who does not work but trusts him to justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Verse 6, just as David also speaks of the blessing of one to whom God counts righteousness. Do you see what Paul has just done there? He's taken two of the great heroes of the Jewish faith, Abraham and David. He's called them ungodly. This was a slur reserved for the enemies of God's people in the Old Testament. And he just called them ungodly. Heroes they may be, but they were ungodly. Yet, Paul says here in verse 6, that the ungodly ones were blessed. David also speaks of the blessing of ones with whom God counts the righteousness of our Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Is this blessing then only for the circumcised or also the uncircumcised? You see, the word blessed here can also be translated happy. Happy are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven. Whose sins are covered. Happy is the man against whom the Lord will not the ungodly are happy before God. How can that be? Only because of justification on the basis of faith, not on the basis of words. What makes you happy today? See, if you find your happiness, you find your joy, you find your meaning, you find your purpose in anything that isn't anchored in Jehovah. That can be taken away, but if your joy, if your happiness, if your purpose, if your identity is anchored in standing righteous before a God who declares you righteous, it can never be taken. It's something that you have, and nothing can change that. God says to you who are ungodly that He counts you righteous because of Christ. And nothing can change that word. Is that where you anchor? Your sense of identity, your sense of purpose, your sense of happiness, your sense of being. My daughter Caitlin was about three years old, she's got six five. She began to like to cut shapes out of pieces of paper. Uh, she cut the paper in half and cut a square or a rectangle or something. My wife, Cindy, she's a pediatrician. So we were talking about childhood development. I discovered that at that age, at three years old, uh, to cut a circle would be something that's beyond her. It's something that a child will only do later. Being a tiger father, I decided to draw a circle. Give it to Caitlin and make her cut it out. She was doing a pretty good job. She was cutting the circle out. And she's finishing her job. But just as she was finishing cutting the circle, she snipped off about an eighth of a circle. She came to me with that circle and she finished and she, she, did it. she put it in my hand and she, she said, um, Papa, it's not quite a circle. Papa, it's not quite a circle. two things that were going through my mind at that point. The first thing was I was really impressed that she knew how to use it with quite. Not quite a circle. Who talks like that, anyway? Secondly, I was so good. So I knelt down. I looked into a tiny field. That is the most beautiful circle. It's the most beautiful circle. Maybe you're here today, and as you look at your own life, you're thinking to yourself. All I can offer God is a not right. There's good news and bad news. The bad news is it's worse than you think. You're not just not perfect, you're ungodly. You're ungodly just like David was ungodly and Abraham was ungodly and I am ungodly. Everyone in this room is ungodly. It's worse than you think. At the same time, if you're in Christ by justified by faith alone. When God sees you through the lens of Christ. When God sees you through the lens of justification by faith alone. He will say to you today, righteous. Righteous. When that takes hold of your heart, there's nothing that there you want to go to except Christ and Him crucified. to pursue Him by faith with all different minds, you'll be aware whether your dreams are fulfilled or unfulfilled, whether duty duty is done or undone, that you are incredibly, incredibly blessed. Thank you that we stand before you righteous, not because of our words, but because of Christ. We pray today, Lord, that you seal that upon us. Oh Lord, how we long to know that deeply How we long to be shaped.